Let's read God's word. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them? Who, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak with the word, speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of these things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we just pray for our brother Ken as he uh, presents your word this morning, that uh, you would give him strength, uh, help him through the trials that he's been through. Father, we do uh, pray you'd help him to have clarity, Lord. And Father, we just pray that your word will speak to our hearts. God, help give us ears to listen, Lord, and hearts to hear what you have to tell us. And Father, may you be honored and glorified in this service. In Christ's name, amen. For now, I'll sit this for my water bottle. And later, if I need to sit on it, I will. It's a great joy to be here with you. Thank you for those of you who were here for the Sunday School Hour for your endurance. And uh, I trust that as we uh, shared that you were encouraged by what God has for you as a church here in the Orangeville Gun Lake area. We're really excited for you. And we are so greatly blessed that you partner with us here in Michigan with the Michigan Association of Regular Baptist Churches. 
Now, what we just read from Scripture, we'll go back to in just a few moments. I ask that that entire text be read. A lot of times, we just like to highlight what seems to be the crescendo moments. And in that text, it's when um, they pray and God answers prayer uh, in, the, in the brief context at the end. But those last several verses that talk about the impact of their prayer time together really in many ways illustrates how we as churches partner and network together. We are the Michigan Association of Regular Baptist Churches. I've had the opportunity several times to talk about that here. It's our joy, my wife Sharon and I, to serve with you as we partner with 170 plus churches across the state in an official partnership. We have about 200 churches that work with us in kind of a loosely knit network. Our desire is that we would partner together to connect churches with one another because um, if you'll notice in the New Testament, God talks about churches, plural. Now we understand the universal church that God is, Christ is building his church comprised of all types of peoples from all over the world, different ethnicities, different locations. But it is very important for us to remember that every single local church is important to God that God uses those churches, not just in their own individual uh, location, but as they partner together with one another. Our goal is not just to connect our churches together, but more importantly, to assist and encourage our churches to connect with their communities through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even my presentation during the Sunday School Hour today, as you've specifically asked me to assist you in looking through the lens of Scripture as to how this church can become even more effective in reaching your community in the days ahead. That's part of our partnership together for which we give God the thanks. I mentioned just a moment ago uh, about our churches. You can see that we're broken into seven different regions through our state association of different colors denote those regions. And we are so blessed by the fact that so many of our churches are spread out all over the state, including the Upper Peninsula, where Pastor Andrew and Val and their family used to be located, and uh, were a very effective and essential part of that regional association. Uh, I think we all agree together, we're glad they're here now, and God has a very specific purpose and use for them here. And it's been my joy over the past many years uh, serving in this role to uh, get to know Andrew, to hear his heart for God, hear his heart for the church, to see God use him in one location, and actually to be part of the catalyst and the encourager to, for him to be here now. And we're so thankful for them and for that. Uh, my role uh, is as the ministry director, and that means that we um, are involved in speaking like we are today. Uh, we typically are involved in different churches each week. And we uh, travel around in an extensive road ministry, seeking to mentor pastors to encourage our churches in very practical ways, taking the word of God and helping them understand how it might most effectively unfold in their particular context. And uh, I do a lot of writing and uh, consulting, as I've done with this church. And uh, we're involved with churches in pastoral transition and uh, just an advisory type of a situation with churches. We just completed our 15th year in this role, 
as uh, Pastor Andrew alluded uh, earlier in the service, uh, we're entering our last full year with the MARBC. I started talking with our leadership uh, four or five years ago as we were kind of redefining our core values that um, this role that I've served in, as well as my predecessors, has just expanded beyond what one person can do. And so we just had our annual conference for our state a week ago, last uh, Monday and Tuesday in Grand Rapids. We unfolded to our uh, church constituency our plan moving forward. Um, I will actually be a co-director this next year. I'll be kind of the boots on the ground person who will continue to do ministry, actually in many ways, the way that Sharon and I have been doing it for the last 15 years. Pastor Doug Crawford, who currently is the lead pastor at West Cannon Baptist Church, north of Grand Rapids, is going to be kind of the visionary as we take my role and morph it into actually a part-time uh, lead person and then three or four other uh, part-time roles where we will be focusing on certain discipleship and evangelism dynamics to more effectively assist our churches in the areas that are listed here. And so, uh, Lord willing, at the end of 2022, December 31st, uh, Sharon and I will officially complete that part of our ministry journey. We're not retiring per se, but uh, I've been trying to figure out a good word because um, when you talk about transitioning in today's culture, it ha don't you hate it when, when our, our culture hijacks words and makes them mean everything that you don't mean? So I, I mentioned that at our state conference on Monday as I was sharing, and I got a text from one of our young pastors. He said, Ken, just tell people you're shifting gears. They'll understand. So I don't know if that means we're shifting up into another higher gear or if it means we're downshifting, but we, we're making a shift. I love what I've been doing with Orangeville, that I believe God has gifted me and given me practical experience in this area. We'll be doing that further uh, beyond our role with the MERBC, and we thank you for your prayer support for us. I love Sharon. She's been a great joy to me. Uh, we've not been married 68 years. Um, at this point, we haven't been alive that long, but we're getting close to that, uh, and we will celebrate uh, 45 years this November, next month, and we're so blessed by what God has done in our lives, the joy of pastoring in churches, which we believe has helped us to be prepared for what we've been doing the last uh, now 16 years, and so we are so grateful, and we're grateful for your partnership with us. Now, we're in the book of Acts, and we're going to go back to Acts chapter 4, but I just want to share with you, I think the scriptural dynamics that make an, a ministry like the MERBC so important. Oh, i got to put up the next slide. There's our, our crazy grandkids. That was at our granddaughter Camille's uh, previous birthday, which was a year ago last weekend, so we got to get a new picture now, but... Uh, we just so, we're so grateful to you for your support for us over the years. Uh, just flip over really quickly to um, Acts chapter 14, because this is what I challenged our churches and our pastors with last Monday, as we talked actually through some of the texts that we're going to look at this morning. But when you land in Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas have been sent out by a church that was established in Asia Minor, the first church that actually was a church to reach non-Jewish background believers. Uh, they, were, they were people who did not have a uh, Jewish and therefore an Old Testament understanding of creation and God and God's plans and purposes. And so God scattered the church, and um, part of that scattering was to a region called Antioch, 
uh, a few hundred miles north of Jerusalem. They, the people there had no concept culturally or spiritually about what these folks from Jerusalem were talking with them about. And so those people had to be very creative. We're going to allude to that a little bit in Acts 4. They had to understand how to connect with the culture where God had planted them that did not understand and have a knowledge and background that they did. What's interesting is as Paul and Barnabas were used of God to go um, lead people to Christ in different villages and communities, and I said to the, the messengers at our conference last Monday, really when it talks in chapter 14, verse 19, for example, that the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, they persuaded the crowds to stone Paul, drag him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. The, gathered, the disciples gathered with him. He rose up, entered the city, and on the next day he went with Barnabas to Derbe, and then they went from there uh, and started returning back after they were preaching the gospel in cities, reaching people for Christ, making disciples. They returned to Lystra, Iconium, and to Antioch. And I, I shared there, in many ways, I read that, and I, you could just replace some of these names with, with towns and villages and cities in Michigan. There are people all over this, all over the state. And, and there are people that are lost. And uh, for every church you see, there's sadly, in some parts of our state, there's more bars and casinos and all those things. And it used to be something more up north. And now, you know, even driving here today, we're reminded of that. Reminded of the fact that people need Christ. These towns and villages and townships and counties, they need effective, biblically-based Local churches filled with fully functioning followers of Jesus Christ. Here's the genius, I believe, of an association, which is why your stewardship investment with us in the MARBC is so significant and important. I want you to just notice four things that are commented by Dr. Luke as he talks about Paul and the others who were ministering in that first missionary journey. Here's what it says in verse 22. First of all, it says they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, of the followers. Here are veteran preachers. Uh, Paul's an apostle, but he's also mentoring pastors. And as they go from place to place, they're strengthening the souls of the disciple. There's something about experience. That's the word I want to use as a byline for that statement, for that phrase. There's something about the experiences that we share in our own lives that we can then relate to others. I did that. I had the joy of doing that during our Sunday school hour as we talk about uh, this consultation and taking the next steps forward as a church. There's something about experience. If it's your own, or even for us as we travel from church to church, and here are the ideas that different ones have done and how they've experienced and they've taken the gospel message and related in such practical ways, how churches have encouraged one another as disciples, as followers of Jesus Christ. There's something about experience that makes us glad that the word church is in the plural. We sharpen one another in that way through our experience. And then it goes on to say they were encouraging them, verse 22, in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Well, that's such a hallelujah statement, isn't it? Hey, we're going to have tribulation. We're going to experience challenges. We're going to be oppressed. We may even be persecuted. Frankly, even still today, there are parts of the world where people, even on the Lord's day today, to gather like we are here, some will be martyred because they dared to gather in the name of Jesus Christ. We're going to hear about that in our text 
So the second word besides this word of uh, experience is objectivity. You know, some, and you don't have to be a veteran in the faith. It might be you claim Christ as your Savior in a, in a, in a pagan world where other religious factions will say, don't you dare name the name of Christ. And for you to say that publicly means you're literally going to lose your life in the next hour. This idea of objectivity helps us to understand that it's not all glamour and roses when it comes to following Christ, but you know what? Christ is our strength, the Holy Spirit is our power, and the Word of God is our guide, and it helps us to be objective in terms of how we partner together, which is why I'm glad the Word is plural for churches as well. And then look at verse 23, it says, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church... So the third aspect of partnership is this principle of leadership. Churches partnering together, we gather for ordination councils, we have pastoral and church gatherings of leaders where iron sharpens iron. The value of an association like ours is that it provides opportunities for further leadership development. And I'm so blessed. I'm going to have the joy and privilege of actually doing this in another state, Lord willing, a week from right now. Right now, have you ever heard of Watkins Glen, New York? I think there's a racetrack there, isn't there? Well, I'll be preaching, Lord willing, right now, a week from now, in Watkins Glen, New York, which is located near another church where that association in the Northeast Fellowship, New York, um, I believe um, parts of New Jersey, Pennsylvania, uh, parts of New England, there will be pastors and church representatives gathered there, and I'll be preaching to them this week on the topic of prayer. And uh, it's a great joy to gather together, but one of the things that's nice about it is that we as leaders, as servants of God, can join together and sharpen one another, just like we are today here at Orangeville. We as believers in Christ are gathering together to sharpen one another through God's word and through our worship together and our affirmation of the things that matter most to God. And then the fourth phrase and the last phrase there is this, they gathered with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This idea of praying for one another isn't just the fact, oh, I'm going to pray that for one, Ken doesn't collapse today because he's had these health issues that he talked about earlier in the Sunday school hour. It's not just that. It's not just a praying that we'll get through the day. But you know, when we pray for one another and we uphold one another in prayer, especially as we focus on the things of God, there's this sense as we join before the throne of God of accountability. First of all, as a church, we come to Christ and we say, God, it's not about us. It's not even my ideas or agenda. God, we humbly come before your throne in Jesus' name, recognizing that what we are dealing with, what we're trafficking in as we get into the word of God and as we talk about our burdens and desires as a local church, is really not about us. It's about God. And there's accountability in this ownership that it's not just Ken doing his thing or Jill doing her thing or Susie doing her thing. It's we together as the body of Christ doing what Christ has commissioned us to and commanded us to through the great commission and the great commandment. And that's why it's a joy. It has been a great joy now going into 16 years to work with you as churches. And we thank you for your prayer support. It, brings accountability to us. We thank you for your financial support. When we get these, these love gifts and checks from our churches, I, I, I am reminded of the fact 
It's not me and, or me and Sharon and a solo or a duo just going out and doing our thing. This is the body of Christ. These are churches that are collectively collaborating together in the greatest endeavor that God has ever designed. It's the church of Jesus Christ, and we as churches partner together. Now, we won't be able to be with you this week because I'll be traveling to New York State. But I just want to thank you for affirming those who partner with you in missions because I think it's such a great thing. And uh, we're disappointed we won't be able to be here, not just because you're good cooks, but because we enjoy your fellowship. But thank you for the invitation. And I can tell you that as we're traveling, we'll be praying for you as you continue to partner with others in reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, being in Acts chapters 1 through 4, we're just going to do a really, really quick survey, but we're going to be in Acts 4. It might seem to be kind of peculiar with the theme of your conference being the supreme worth of Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, as we flip in transition from the gospel narratives, and especially if you think of, of God, Dr. Luke, who wrote the gospel of Luke as a doctor, I've shared with you before, that's what I thought God wanted me to do, and I wasn't even thinking of God when I first wanted to be a doctor. It was just me as an unbelieving guy wanting to be a doctor. I just thought it looked really neat. I liked science. I liked uh, working with people. But then uh, God saved me by his grace as a senior. I ended up going off to Christian college for a couple years to learn a biblical basis for the sciences. And while I was there, God redirected my path. But I've always liked Dr. Luke. I, I've, I've just gone through a bad sinus infection, and I had COVID, and I'm way past the quarantine, so you don't have to worry about that. But I, fr I frankly, I'm still fatigued at times. I still get not as much brain fog as I did. But, but I just like Dr. Luke because... And have you noticed in his gospel and here in the book of Acts, he's a doctor. He pays attention to specific details. I really like that. I got a call from my doctor's office every day for almost 14 straight days. That was not an annoyance. Now, there were a couple times I dozed off and didn't realize my cell phone had been buzzing. But I like that. And, and they asked me specific questions that were pointed to details. What was your blood oxygen level? How's your breathing? How's this and that? Or is your medicine helping you? And all these things. Um, has Sharon abandoned you yet because you were already an idiot before you got COVID? And now with this brain fog, who knows what you're doing now? Those types of things. But they go into detail. I like that. Luke does. And so as he transitions from the Gospel of Luke into Acts, the narrative is for the first three chapters about the fact that Time and time again, Jesus is reminding them at the end of Luke's gospel and in the first chapter before Jesus ascends back into heaven, <clears throat> Jesus has this focal point in his life that his followers who were the disciples now about to be, disciple means a follower. That's all the word disciple means. And so as I mentioned earlier, the, this phrase, fully functioning followers of Jesus Christ, is that that's our goal. We're, we're wanting to follow Christ, and not just kind of in a laissez-faire attitude, but we want to be fully functioning followers of Christ. But some, in the midst of Jesus during his three and a half years of earthly ministry, he's already told them, John chapters 13 through 17, you're going to be ones that I send out. Different word, not Mathetes, which is a disciple, a follower, but an apostolos, a, an apostle, 
one who is specifically set out on a purpose. And these 12 men were going to have the purpose of helping establish the early church before the canon of Scripture, the Word of God, is completed. So these men have been following Jesus for years. Can you think with me for a moment as they're walking with Jesus, they're seeing him involved in all kinds of interpersonal interactions and scenarios, all kinds of wonderful experiences, including healing people. But there was one thing as these people were up close and personal with Jesus for three and a half years. There was one thing that they asked him, Lord, would you help us know how to do this? Does anyone here know? Um, this water, bo- water bottle has not been opened. I could give you a free bottle of water if you'd like, if you get the answer right. Does anyone know what they asked Jesus? Yes, sir, in the back row. Oh, you get a drink out of the drinking fountain, buddy, for that, okay? Do you know what they asked Jesus? Lord, will you, yes, sir, will you teach us how to pray? You think of all the things that the gospel records about Jesus, healing people, raising people from the dead, walking on water. Hey, Lord, how about that? I just kind of like to, I could do better than Peter, you know. I could do a little surfing or wakeboarding or whatever. We could try that later on Gun Lake if you'd like. I'll drive by while I watch you sink. <laughs> Lord, would you teach us to pray? They caught it. Here is the God of the universe incarnate in flesh. The Son of God made manifest to us by taking on the garment of human flesh, as Paul would write to the Philippian believers, and coming in the form of a servant and in the likeness of men. Imagine all of eternity being God and then being taken to a closed closet of human flesh and saying, now I want you to wear this. Be self-contained in that. Wow, we're entering that time of year when we remember that. And I can't even begin to fathom that, can you? But all the things they could have asked, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And maybe part of it was they were starting to get kind of their theological bearings together and they thought, well, if, if God in the flesh has to pray to the Father, then we really do need to. We need to know how to. And so we have the disciples' prayer, not the Lord's prayer, really, when Jesus teaches them, you know, our Father, hallowed be your name. That's not, that's not the Lord's prayer. Jesus didn't talk like that to his, his heavenly Father, but this is a disciples' prayer. Here's a model for prayer for us. Time and time again, they're together, and, and so many times when you read in the gospel narratives, it says, here are crowds, they're wanting to be healed, more people are showing up because they heard about this guy or this gal being healed, and Jesus would slip away from all of them. And he would pray. Was he a callous God for doing that? No. He realized in his incarnate form in human flesh that his strength and his focus and his ability to navigate life as the God-man Christ Jesus was dependent on him having clearly communicative opportunities with his father. That, I believe, is why when they saw him slipping away all the time, and can you imagine overhearing God the Father and God the Son in conversation? 
I think that's why they said, Lord, would you teach us to pray? Well, that was a great precursor, wasn't it? Because now we come to this time when Jesus is about, after his resurrection from the grave, he's, he's, he's taken the sin curse on the cross. He's bore our sins and our burdens. His blood was shed for the remission of sin. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord now shall be saved. He was buried as he himself had said and as scripture prophets, psalmists had written about in past generations. He's buried and three days later, guess what? Anyone know? Everyone should get a bottle of water for this. You should be jumping up to say it. He is risen, right? He is risen indeed. And for another 40 days, he's getting these guys, these sent out ones ready for the big event. And he says to them, I want you to go back to the room. You know the room, don't you? The upper room. It's where they gathered just before Jesus was hauled off by the, the Roman officials and the mob from the Jewish leaders to be crucified. And he spent hours with them, teaching them about this moment that was to occur. He said, I want you to go back there, and I want you to wait. You ever tell a kid to wait? And about 15 seconds into the first period of waiting, is time up yet? And here is Jesus, the Son of God, the resurrected Savior of the universe, who looks at them before he ascends from the mountaintop, and he says, I want you to go back in the room. And you know what we do there, and that's what I want you to do, and I want you to wait until the one I promised you will come. And so the first preliminary prayer meeting that would lead to the church takes place. And they wait, and they pray, and as Acts chapter 2 shares with us in the early verses, while they're waiting, and they're praying, and they're anticipating, and all the things that a group of people who want to be true, committed followers of God, but they're not yet sure what that really entails and means, the Spirit of God comes upon them. And literally births the church of Jesus Christ. And we read all these technical terms throughout the New Testament. What happens that moment on the day of Pentecost? They're baptized into the body of Christ. First Corinthians talks about that. They are infilled. They're filled with the Holy Spirit permanently as true bona fide believers in Jesus Christ. And now they have the privilege and joy of being influenced by God's Spirit so that as they follow fully functioning as a follower of Christ, it opens up avenues and doors of opportunity in their lives and their hearts and their spirits where the Spirit of God can fill them and use them for God's glory. And they come out of that room and they start declaring the glory of God, the first presentations of, of personal witness of the gospel. And then here's Peter, dear Peter, who we left the gospels looking at like, him, Lord? You chose him to do this? And frankly, as you look at that, the only thing that can rationally, even from a spiritual standpoint, connect the dots with Peter 
is this isn't Peter pre-Acts and in the gospel because he's just a guy prone to wander. He's impulsive. He's flippant. He's committed, but that commitment is based upon his own abilities and flesh, just like all of us. Let's be honest. We're all that way. But now he stands on the day of Pentecost there in Jerusalem, and he begins to break down all of the prophetic scriptures of the Old Testament, the historical background of what God has been involved with from Genesis 1, and then he ties in the Messiah that you've been anticipating and studying. He has been here, and his name is Jesus Christ. And when you get to the end of Acts chapter 2, he says, they say, what shall we do? And he says, repent, believe, be baptized, and you'll be added to the church. And God adds to that first day church of Jesus Christ thousands of people into a saving relationship with him. And the church is born. So we could just say, well, hallelujah, that's a great missions thought. And Ken, you've kind of articulated things in a way that hopefully was helpful for you. But that's not the point that I would like to bring this morning. Because imagine in your context what it's like to live in a world where it seems like everyone's against you. Down is up, up is down, sideways is straight. What should be crooked and curvy and hilly and scary, everyone says, oh, that makes perfect sense. What seems logical and what seems absolute and what seems nonsensical, everyone says, no, you can't believe that. That's not the way things are. That's not the way life is. Imagine where the government is saying, uh, we're going we're gonna to scrutinize you. We're going to look under every little nook and cranny of your life. We're going to make sure that you stay in lockstep with who we are. Imagine where even the religions of the day are sniping at you, doing everything to get you to fall so that they can run to the authorities and say, look, there they are. They are not obeying what your edict has declared when in those contexts, those edicts were in conflict with this. Does that at all sound familiar to you? I saw some of you nodding like, yeah. Well, we're getting into a political rally here now, aren't we? No, I'm talking about the first century church. That's what I'm talking about. That's where they were. And so as we read that whole text in Acts chapter 4, it was for a purpose. Because it's to remind us, I, I quoted this a couple weeks ago at a pastor's installation service. I may have shared it with you here before. Jean-Baptiste Fabre. He wasn't a Baptist. He was a French philosopher. But he once quoted in the 1800s, the more things change, the more they remain the same. Hey, church, things have not changed over 2,000 years since the natal call of the church on the day of Pentecost. And so let's dive in here for a minute because we need to learn from our forerunners, our predecessors in the early church about what it's like to honor and glorify God, seeking to permeate our culture 
bringing glory to God, telling others about the supreme worth of Jesus Christ when the guns may not be loaded yet, but they're there. The ammunition may be available, and all it needs to be is to put in there. I'm not talking about physical guns. I'm just talking about the fact that a lot of people are going to come back at us, guns blazing with their opposition, with their screams of hypocrisy, their screams of outdatedness, their screams of, of, um, of uh, un- unflexibility. What it is, is that just like all, all generations of the church, we're called to uphold a holy standard and not just to de- debate about it and deliberate about it, but to live it out in our lives. So it's taken a while connected the MRBC to this, talked about the background. Let's go back to Acts chapter 4 for a few moments. As they were speaking, Acts 1, to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. They are the the believers, especially Peter and John and the apostles. And um, they're preaching the gospel. And look, verse 2, especially at what, this is a, Floyd translation of the word annoyed. This is what ticked them off. This is what set them on a fast pace towards persecution and martyrdom of those who were doing this. It says that uh, they were greatly annoyed, verse 2, because they, speaking of the believers, were teaching the people and proclaiming the resurrection from the dead. Did I read that correctly? No, I left out one word, didn't I? I left out a name. It's at his name that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord, the glory of God the Father. They were talking about Jesus. And that will always, that name, which is above every name, to which every knee will bow, will always be the center of, of all controversy in this universe. They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. During my COVID stupor at the beginning of the week, after our conference, I took Wednesday to just try to regather a few brain cells together. And so I'm laying on my couch. I've always been a space geek, so I watched... uh, Jeff Bezos' space rocket go up into the stratosphere for a couple minutes, carrying William Shatner, Captain Kirk from Star Trek. And I was concerned for him, not necessarily the spaceship would blow up, but you got a guy 90 years old in there. Dude, what are you doing? I said the same thing when President H. George H.W. Bush did those parachute jumps for years. Like, couldn't you find something better to do? Doesn't your family have any control over you anymore? (laughs) I-D-I-O-T is what comes to mind sometimes. And I know you're looking at me and saying, I'm sure people have used that a lot for you, and yes, they have. What saddened me was when he landed, and he's there with Bezos and some others who are interviewing him, and he's talking about Maybe we're, we're to the edge and we're going to find 
what our life's purpose is. And I thought, oh, you didn't have to spend millions of dollars sitting in a vessel for probably less than 20 minutes for the flight and a couple hours total before the launch and then the landing to find your purpose in life. So sad. But we try to invent and create every other thing except realizing God has already given us the answer and it's in Jesus' name. So they're there. They arrested them, verse 3. They put them in custody. They gathered the rulers and the elders and scribes together in Jerusalem. I mean, this is a big, this is a big hob, hobnob, a big, big gathering of people. Verse 5, they have Ananias, the high priest, Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all those who are of the high priestly family. I mean, this is not some fly-by-night uh, Barney Fife and Andy, Andy Taylor in Mayberry gathering. This is in Raleigh, North Carolina, the state capital, and they got the hobnobbers, the governors, the Supreme Court justices. They've got everyone together. And they've got these guys in that room because they absolutely want to intimidate them and threaten them because of what they're doing. And guess what happens? They share their side of things. They share their threats. And then in verse 7, it says, when they set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? And then Peter... Read the next phrase with me, friends. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. That's one of the keys. You don't need to pay a consultant to know that. Just read the Word of God. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people that we did it. Me and John and some of the others, we did it. No, he doesn't say that. It could have been his moment to really be an influencer of people and an oppressor of people, but he doesn't say that. He says, I just want you to let it be known today to all the people of Israel that by the name, verse 10 of, say it with me, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Is that, is that really funny? I mean, when you know the background of Jesus and you know that in the Gospels, some of the people hearing about this man who's healing people and sharing things that seem to be from God, but then they hear not just his name is Jesus, but he's Jesus of Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And here's Peter filled, quote unquote, with the Holy Spirit. And here's how he describes it before he just says his name, Jesus. Now he says, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Oh, it's just like turning the knife, isn't it? The gospel, Paul says, will always be an offense. Now we don't use the gospel sword in a I'm gonna get you kind of way. I'm going to slay you with the fact that you are an ungodly sinner condemned to hell. We used to do that a lot in our gospel presentations. The focus should not be on us or even our sin plight. The focus has to be on Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by him. And so if we're going to understand what it means to truly uh, show others the supreme worth of Christ, we need to follow the example of the early church. 
And as a result of the Spirit filling them and them being prayerful as they approach it, that's what they do. And so he goes on to talk about this man that's been healed, and Peter goes on and kind of gives an encapsulation of what he had preached on the day of Pentecost in chapter 2. But he makes this statement. We memorize it, don't we, in Awana kids. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Can you say it with me? There is no, there is no salvation given among men above, above any other name. It's uh, under heaven among men by which we must now be saved. There you is. There it is. Chief priests, scribe, authorities, leaders, all the bigwigs, the hobnobbers of Jerusalem gathered in one room. And here's fishermen saved by God's grace, filled with his spirit, prayerful Peter who says, I just want you to know there's no name under heaven given to us whereby we must be saved. When they saw the boldness of Paul and of Peter and John, verse 13, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And then they recognized what class? Oh, these guys have been with, say it with me, Jesus. So they, they got in the corner. They said, what are we going to do about this? These guys aren't going to back down. We don't know why, but they seem to be endowed with some kind of a conviction and a power that we don't understand. And so they threaten them again. They say, you can go out, you can do whatever you've been doing, just don't use his name. And Peter and John respond, and they say, whether it's right in the sight of God, verse 19, to listen to you or rather than God, you must judge that. But I will tell you this, guys, we can't help but speak of what we've seen and heard. Will you leave this building today as the Church of Jesus Christ going out into the Orangeville Gull Lake community? And you're just looking around for people. I just can't hold this to myself. I've got to let someone else know about the name that is above every name, but whereby under heaven all men must be saved. And his name is not just God. It's not just, oh, I hated this. I heard it a couple days ago at a ball game that was on TV. And, I, and this is basically the only thing I caught out of it. Guy says, and of course the man upstairs. And I thought, oh, He's so much more than that. His name is Jesus. So they released them. They threatened them. They said, you can do whatever you want to do. Just don't use his name. And we get back to the text that we read to start this section this morning. I won't read it all again since we already were able to read it together. But I just want you to notice what happens all the societal, cultural things that I listed that you thought, oh, he's describing 2021 in Gall Lake, Michigan, or in the United States of America. And then we were reminded, no, that we're talking about the first century church, the baby church, the only church in existence to this point. And this is what they're facing. I just want you to notice how they responded to their culture, to their society, to their governmental leaders, to the others who were oppressing them, to the peer pressure, to the fact that they were the lowest of the lowest anyway because they came from an ethnic, ethnic background that everyone abhorred. All the things that were going against them, and here's what happens. When they were released, verse 23, they, were, they went to their friends, they reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them, and when the group heard it, they started crying, and they said, God, what have you done to us? And they went their separate ways. No. When they heard all the stuff 
They said, let's call a committee together. Let's put a few committees together. We'll figure out the persecution committee. We'll figure out how do we get legal aspects taken care of with this committee. We'll figure out, can we get a mob larger than their mob that would come after Peter and John to force them away committee? No. What do they do, class? It says, when they heard the report, they lifted their voices together to God. Lord, would you teach us to pray? I want you as a group to go back to that room and I want you to wait in a prayerful posture until the one that has been promised comes. They go out, they share the gospel. Peter is the first one to preach it. Acts 2.42 says they spent their focus without Sunday school curriculum, without any discipleship material to direct them in what they needed to do. Only the spirit of God dwelling within them the understanding of the Old Testament they had, and the direction of the sent out ones, the apostles. They focused themselves upon the apostles' teaching or doctrine. They focused upon true koinonio fellowship. That's why I wanted to read the end of this chapter four where it says they had all things in common, they shared together. They spent time focusing upon the finished work of Jesus Christ because it says they were regularly involved in breaking bread, which is speaking of the Lord's table. The bread, the cup, remembering that it's Christ, Jesus, who's the focus of our lives. Guess what the fourth one was? They devoted themselves steadfastly to prayer. And that explains chapter four. And here's what I want you to look at and remember as we leave here this morning. When they share, they encouraged others with their prayer requests. They didn't go on a solo act of prayer they wanted to make sure everyone knew so that everyone could join their hearts together to God. So, verse 24, they prayed corporately. They prayed as a group. They prayed in small groups. They prayed as families. They prayed as co-workers. Wherever they were, they realized they didn't have the answers, but they knew who did. And so they submitted to him in prayer. Shame on us, church, in the 21st century. Shame on us. We spend so, we don't even spend a hundredth of our time in prayer, let alone if you take the percentages of Acts 2.42, at least a fourth of the time, if you want to qualify those things and say they're balanced out, which I don't think they were. I think everything was immersed in prayer. Shame on us. We think we're so clever. We think we've got all the products. We can go find something online at a bookstore. We can find another church that's been doing this and try to model after them. And we think we can do this or that. All shame on us. We, we have access to the throne of the universe. That's usually the last thing we think of. We do meetings. We do proposals. And at the end, we say, oh, yeah, we better tack on prayer to make sure God blesses and endorses what we've just figured out in the flesh. Oh, God, help us. Can I tell you, working with you as I have the last four months, this is the critical key right here. That's why it's number one in my recommendations. You need to be a praying church in all contexts, in all ways, as a gathered group like this, in small groups, in your community, praying for people that you have in common that you know, praying that you will be, by God's grace, influencers to help people meet Jesus. They prayed corporately. They prayed with a biblical perspective. By the way, I've been a Christian. I'm getting close to 50 years as a Christian. You know what I have found? The more time I spend going around the block as, as a Christian, especially as a prayer, I find out every year how bad a prayer I am. And so more and more of my time I spend focused just reading the word of God and 
rehearsing it back to God. Did you know the Psalms is a prayer book? I do a lot of time. Just As a matter of fact, I, I get texts from people all over the world. We've had family members, six, some have died, been praying for people that we can't hug in person. So I'll, oftentimes, just I'll, I'll write a prayer based upon a passage of Scripture that I will text or email to a friend or a family member and just say, this is my prayer for you. You write your prayers, you know what, when you do it, your heart and your focus is more upon the Word of God than it's on the whim that comes into your mind the moment you want to pray. They prayed scripture. Why do the Gentiles rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? They're quoting, they're quoting David in the Psalms. Kings have ever set themselves up like they're the rulers gathered together and they're going to come against God, the anointed one, and they're going to overrule them. Duh. They pray that. And then they pray verse 29 in a very unique way. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness and to, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. God, we need boldness. We know we're going to walk out of this room and we're going to walk into a furnace of opposition and persecution and potentially even martyrdom. But God, help us not to wither in the heat. Help us to be bold for you. Don't give us a back alley out of it. We want to walk right into the heat as your representatives. And verse 30, all of this we want done in the name of Jesus. It's not about us. It's not about me, Peter, the old fisherman who used to stick his foot in his mouth all the time. It's not about John, the one that is the beloved follower of Jesus. It's not about Mary or Julie or whoever else was gathered there in that prayer gathering. It's not about us. We've got to remember that as we walk back out into the culture in a couple minutes. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. So, application. How or does God answer their prayer? Well, we already read it earlier in the service, but look at verse 31. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken together, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Did God answer their prayer? Yes, he did. Did God answer their prayer? Not totally. Well, he did totally, but here's what happens when you and I pray. We think we're God's informants. God, did you know this? I've been watching Merlin Jones. He told me he has a bad tooth. He's on high pain meds, and he might fall asleep. Did you know that at 10.45, he dozed for a half second? Convict that brother. No, he has, he's been pretty attentive or he's pretty good holding his eyes open while he's sleeping one another. And I want to learn your trick if that's the case. God, did you know about these people who are threatening us? Did you know that? Do you think God knew that? He did. So they pray and they say, we think, God, what we really need as an answer to prayer is boldness to speak. Now, God knew they needed to be bold, but that's not, it's not going to come out of them. And so what does he do? 
He answers their prayer in the way that he knew they needed it answered by filling them with the Holy Spirit. And because they were filled with God's Spirit to be empowered, even as Jesus had promised in Acts 1.8, but when he comes upon you, dunamis, which is the word for dynamite in the English language, power will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in all of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And that is an answer to that promise of Jesus in Acts 1.8 by the way in which God answered their prayer in Acts chapter 4. They were emboldened, but it wasn't in the flesh. It was by his spirit in answer to prayer. How do we make much of Jesus in Gull Lake and Orangeville and Plainwell and Southwest Michigan? How do we make much of him in not just the times that we gather here for worship, but when we're interacting with the person as Pastor alluded to earlier at the gas station or the convenience store or went in line with a buddy out on Gun Lake or talking to a family member who's so greatly discouraged because they've lost loved ones and they've got illnesses and all these things. How do we, how would he navigate that? We point them to Jesus as we prayerfully, led by the Spirit, let him be the one who works through us. And that will only be accomplished when we take the time to talk with him and seek his guidance and direction. I've been praying that for you the past several months as I've interacted with some of you, some of you more than I would have liked to, frankly, sometimes. You're, you're a lot of fun. As a group, we're praying for you. But I want to tell you something. There's no magic pill. There's no really top-notch program. There's no one person who will help you pull it off. It's all about Jesus Christ, his word and prayer, and the enablement of the Holy Spirit. And when that's our focus, everyone will see and realize the supreme worth of Jesus Christ in and through us. And that's our prayer this morning, Lord, as we close, that this will indeed be your, your opportunity to work in our hearts and lives, to work through us as a body of believers in this local church, that we will see Jesus. That we will share Jesus. That people will see Jesus in and through us. Humble us so that we don't think we can pull it off on our own, but instead that we must rely upon you through prayer and your spirit as you direct us by your word. And we know that you're already, you've already created and preordained intersections in our life's path with others to be able to share the supreme name of Jesus. And not just his name, but the person. And so help us to be attentive, prepared, 
and willing as your servants to make much of you, Lord. Oh, you are so worthy. You are worthy of all glory and honor. It's our joy to think of that, to sing about it now, and anticipate the day when that will be all of our focus throughout eternity. And so take us as humble, desirous of functioning fully as followers of you to bring you glory. For your name's sake, amen.